All right, we are in Judges chapter 3. Today's message is men of action. We're going to be starting in verse 7, and I'll just say this is a great passage to be able to do for Father's Day because (laughs) just wait until you see what we get to talk about today. It's going to be something. You know, sometimes people make the mistake And if you're in your Bibles a lot, you wouldn't make this mistake. But sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that the Bible is is a very feminine book. And sometimes there there are churches that just emphasize all the the feminine things about uh, Scripture or about Christianity and make it seem that this is only a a, something that would would appeal to women. And I I think one of the things that we're going to see today is that this is a book that was designed for both men and women. And there are aspects in here that may appeal more to one than the other, but this, this is meant for all of us. And yes, there, there are passages that talk about uh, the flowers in the fields and these things, but what we're going to look at here today, if this, was, if this was a movie, this would be in the action-adventure genre. And depending how you shot this as a movie, it might uh, receive various ratings other than G. So, some interesting stories coming up about these three men of action. These are We're actually getting to the first judges here. It's our third week in judges. We're actually getting to the judges. And I'll just tell you, I like these guys. I like these three judges. As we keep going through the book of Judges, we're going to see the judges more and more become chumps. But originally, starting off here, you got Othniel, who's a pretty ideal good guy. And even Ehud and Shamgar, they have challenges. They have, they have certain uh, handicaps in different areas that people might consider flaws, but it's not the same type of moral flaws that the other judges are going to have later on. So as Judges is written, it, it gets worse and worse as it goes. So we're going to have some fun here as we jump into this. At least I'm going to have fun. I hope you have scripture so you can follow along. Because we'll be reading and talking about it as we go. I think that's the best way to do a sermon like this. So our first judge of these three that we're going to be talking about is Othniel. And we're going to characterize him, you can write this in in your bulletin, as the ideal judge. I think that's how he's being presented here as the ideal judge. So Judges chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth, these false gods, these false demonic gods. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of Cush and Rishanthium, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cush and Rishanthium eight years. Stop there for a moment. We talked about there's this cycle in the book of Judges that's going to keep playing over and over again, where for a while, the nation, they, they serve the Lord. But then they start to get into idolatry. They fall into that and start worshiping these false gods. They let themselves be influenced by the, by the people around them and take on their practices, which were wicked, wicked practices, grossly immoral, even involved human sacrifice, demonic worship, all these different things. And so eventually the anger of the Lord gets kindled. And judgment comes upon them. And God it says, strengthens, strengthens the hand of, a, of an enemy nation that comes and 
puts these people into oppression. And then there's a period where they're in this oppression until they finally they, they cry out to the Lord, and he raises up a judge and delivers them, and then they serve the Lord again as long as that judge is alive. So we're seeing the first of one of these cycles happen here. So they're doing, again, they're, what might be look like good in their own eyes, but it was evil in the sight of the Lord, worshiping these other gods. And so they get sold into the hands of this Mesopotamian king, Cushan Rishanthium, which his, the last part of that, Rishanthium, means doubly wicked. Okay? So how, I think that gives us a little bit of insight into what this, this guy is like. I want to say to you, sometimes, you know, some parents pick out some weird names for their kids. You know, so if you're thinking of Rishanthium, you name your kid. That makes it kind of awkward thing. You're introducing people to your new baby, and, you know, this is, this is, oh, what's your baby's name? He's so cute. Yes, this is Spencer the Doubly Wicked. Oh, no, he would, you wouldn't do that. And I, this probably wasn't maybe his name that he was born with, but it was, it was given to him. And uh, he, he had acquired this by reputation. So he was, he was a bad guy and oppressed the nation and for eight years. I mean, eight years, eight years is a while. I mean, think what you were doing eight years ago and how that was all different. To go through eight years of just, of just a, oppression. I'll avoid making any uh, political statements. <laughs> this, <laughs> I didn't plan that. <laughs> But when the people of the Lord cried out to the Lord, uh, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. So he raised up a, a deliverer. And this is what the judges were. Uh, they were deliverers. Or the word can mean they were saviors. They would, they would save the people. And so it talks about them judging, but it refers to them as deliverers. So again, when we talk about judges here, these judges were, were military leaders at least as far as the first part of what they did, and they would uh, be involved in uh, leading the people somehow to, to overthrow their oppressors, to, to defeat the, whatever wicked nation had been oppressing them. You know, so when you, when you think of judge in this way, we have to think uh, not just you know, sitting behind a bench making decisions, uh, but, but people of action, military leaders. So this is, this is more Judge Dredd, a little less Judge Judy at this point. So, and cry out to the Lord, and Lord raise up the deliverer of people of Israel, save them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. All right, now we can talk about Othniel a little bit here. And we know some details about him if we look back to chapter 1. If you were here two weeks ago, there was a section that we skipped over because we knew we'd come back to it because it, it deals with with Othniel, and that's in chapter 1, verse 11, starting with verse 11. So this happened before. This is when they were still trying to finish their, their conquest of the land, and there was a lot, of, a lot of mopping up, a lot of work still yet to be done. And it says here, From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, remember Caleb, you had in the, uh, when the nation was wandering around the desert and they were supposed to, to take the Canaanites, they were supposed to attack, God told them, I will be with you. I will make it so you, this can happen. And Caleb and Joshua were two of the 12 spies. And they were the ones that came back and said, we can do this. Yes, these, these people are, they look like giants. They outpower us. They're stronger. 
But we have the promise of God. He's told us he will be with us, so we can do this. Let's do it. But the ten other spies talked everyone out of it. The people rebelled. And so they ended up spending 40 years wandering around until that, that disobedient, cowardly generation died off. And just Joshua and Caleb were the only ones allowed to go in. So, so Caleb, he's, he's a man that believes God. He's a, he's a man of action. And the uh, name Caleb means dog. So he was, he was a man of action here. And so he says here, he's probably a little older in age at this point, and he says, whoever attacks Curia, suffer and captures it. He's trying to get other people to step up here too. Whoever attacks Curia, suffer and captures it. I will give him Asheth, my daughter, for a wife. So he offers his daughter, is this, you, you get her if you, if you win this. And I think we have to, we have to guess here that, uh, that Asha here um, was, was probably someone that would, would be a motivation for these guys. So you have Othniel here, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. He steps up and he's like, yes, I will do this. And he goes and he captures it. And he gave Asha his daughter, for a wife. And there's a little bit more detail here, a little bit about this, this, uh, this woman, Aisha, who the more I've been thinking about her and her characteristics, the more I just, I like her. I like Othniel. I like them as a couple. So yeah, this is Father's Day, but th- there's things here for everyone. So Aisha, he gave him Aisha, his daughter, for a wife, and when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing, since you've sent me to the land of the Negev. Give me also a spring of water. And Caleb gave her the upper spring and the lower springs. So you just have some details thrown in here, but I think there's enough here to, to get a bit of a, a glimpse at uh, some of their characteristics, too. That Aisha, she was... You can tell she, she, this was not a, a passive woman, that she was intelligent, she was shrewd. She knew this is the situation we're going into. And with Othniel, these are the things that we need to ask for. These are the things that we need if we're going to excel in this next phase of our life. She was forward-thinking. She was also respectful. She wasn't doing this in any type of way that was usurping authority of, of anyone involved, but she was able to take proper initiative I know she, she's helping her husband to extend his territory. I think Othniel was the type of man that he was enough of a leader that she could respect him, even being a strong woman herself. And she was ready to live into the promises that God gave them, that if they were supposed to, to establish and settle this land, hey, we're going to need this, we're going to need these springs, Let, let's get what we need, Let, let's move forward, let's do this. So the more I've been thinking about them, I, I really like them as a couple. So that was a little bit of a story from Othniel that we've seen him step up and take charge before. So we flip back to Judges uh, chapter 3. So again, it's talking about Othniel, the son of Canaz. So he was, he was a Kenite. That's a little bit of a detail thrown in there too. The Kenites were Midianites. Now if you remember back, the Midianites, Jethro and his daughter Zephora, they were Midianites too. So Moses had, had met Jethro when he was uh, on the run from Egypt. So these people were not naturally Israelites. They were not natural descendants of, of, of Jacob and, and Joseph and all of those. They were not part of the 12 tribes, but many of them came into the nation of Israel 
and, and began worshiping the God of Israel and became Israelites in that sense. So he's associated with the tribe of Judah, but he wasn't a, a natural descendant. He was grafted into that. And I think this is another time that we need to remind ourselves that all of this going on here about expelling people from the land and being told not to intermarry, that this is not primarily about race. This is about who do you serve? Who is the one that is your ultimate love? Is it these demonic idols that you're worshiping with wicked and despicable practices? Or is it about worshiping and serving the God of Israel? That is the real difference that's going on here. It's, it's not ultimately about race. So you have Othniel here, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, and the Spirit of the Lord was on him, and he judged Israel. So you see here the, the Spirit of the Lord. We're going to see this over and over again, that these people did not do what they did by their own power. This was God working through them. And this is something in these days, this was a, a very special, unique thing to have the Spirit of God on them that allowed them to do what they could not do in their own power. Today, after Acts 2, in the Christian era, if you are a genuine believer in Christ, we all have the Spirit that is given to us that too will allow us to do beyond what we could ever do on our own. So he has the Spirit of God upon him. And he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishanthim, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hands. His hand prevailed over Cushan Rishanthim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. So he went out. This is pretty straightforward. Boom, defeated them. Came up to them, prepared to be judged, destroyed them, court adjourned. Let me give you one application from here to begin with. Men of action step up to lead when the situation calls for it. That there are times when everyone else is, is sitting around waiting for somebody else to step up to lead. Somebody else to take action and do what needs to be done. But men of action, leaders, step up and they're the ones that say, well, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to be waiting for somebody else to do what needs to be done in society, in their families, wherever that is. When the situation calls for it, they go for it. The name Othniel actually means the time of God. There are different challenges in, in society and a variety of different ways this might apply to you. But let me just say this too. For Father's Day, men, if you, when the situation calls for it, uh, the day that you got married and said, I do, immediately at that point, the situation was calling for it. You should have been becoming a leader before then too, but the situation calls for it. You were called to be providing that leadership for your family. When you started having children, the situation calls for it. There's just a, a general existing uh, situation that you are being called to to provide leadership. And this is going to play itself out in all different ways. You're not to be the, the passive one waiting for someone else to decide these different things. But uh, a man of God that takes action is the kind that says, you know what, we're going we're to do what we need to do as a family to follow God to grow closer to him, to serve, 
And we're going we're gonna to be, we're going to make sure we're at church when we need to be. And you know what? The kids need to be in Sunday school. And we need to be in Sunday school. We're, we're going to start doing that. And yeah, it'd be easier to, to be sleeping in a little bit more, but we're going to do what we need to do to provide leadership, to take leadership. I think there's a lesson here, too, uh, with Othniel and Asha and, and Caleb. Think about Caleb. What kind of a guy was he? He believed God. He believed God's promises. He followed God. He was, he was a man of action. What kind of man do you think he wanted his daughter to marry? Someone like that. Not, not, not somebody passive. He probably knew he had, a, he, had a, he had a strong daughter and that she would not be happy and she would have a hard time respecting somebody that, that wasn't like that. So what kind, of, what kind of guy, fathers here, do you eventually want your daughter to marry? Let me ask this too for unmarried girls here that are looking towards that one day. What kind of guy are you looking for? What are the, the characteristics that you're looking for? Are you looking for someone that just everyone else at school or at, at college that they think this is what... This is what everyone wants. Or are you going to look for a man of God that's willing to provide leadership and who is growing into that t- being that type of person even now? And guys, what kind of guy are you? And what kind of guy are you becoming? Again, we said Othniel was kind of the ideal judge. His story is pretty straightforward, not as exciting as some of the other ones. But there's some good things about that. He has a reputation here that's it's unsullied. There's, there's not something spoiling his reputation with uh, terrible, sinful things. We, we know he was a sinner because everyone is, but he doesn't have that recorded as part of his story. He even married a, a strong, God-fearing wife. Unlike, remember, so many of the other people were in trouble because they were, they were marrying into uh, the nations around them and people that didn't love the Lord and that cared about these uh, wicked idols instead. Othniel didn't look for someone else to do everything that needed to be done. There's a, that Mr. Someone Else that, that does a lot of things. And Mr. Someone Else must be good at everything. Because sometimes, no matter what the task is, you know, we think, well, well, someone else can do it. We must think this Mr. Someone Else is just capable of a whole lot. But Othniel was willing to step up. So we have him, Othniel the ideal judge. Moving on, we're going to look at Ehud. <laughs> Characterize him as the left-handed judge. So Ehud, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon. But keep this straight, you had Ehud, he's the good guy. Eglon, he's the bad guy. Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel... Because they have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So you hear, before it was eight years. Now it's 18 years of being, being oppressed by this, uh, these foreign conquerors. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Let's stop here for a moment because we see a few different things. 
First of all, we talked about Eglon, whose name literally means little calf, although it's interesting because we're going to see he wasn't exactly little. This is going to come up. Also, we have here Ehud, and there's a few things about him. We're going to say we have, we have flawed leaders here. He wasn't necessarily flawed morally, but some things that maybe the people around him would have said, well, this guy isn't the type that, he's not our cookie-cutter ideal what we would pick for a leader. He had two things against him here. First, well, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, often he was from the tribe of Judah. They're a pretty noble tribe. And if you look at how well they did in the conquest in the first chapter, hey, they got it done for the most part. They, they were conquering. Where the only thing it really says about Benjamin is, uh, you know, they had an abysmal failure in not driving out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. So he was kind of, he was from the wrong tribe, and this, this smaller tribe, and he was, so wrong tribe and also wrong physically. He was, he was left-handed. Let me hear, how many, how many lefties are there here? Get a, get a few. Do you know that our English word uh, for, for sinister, it comes from the Latin word meaning left or left-handed? Just saying, not looking down upon you at all. <laughs> but throughout history, it does mean that um, a lot of people did view left-handed people. There's just something about them. It was mistrusted, looked down upon. You know, you and your, your schmeary handwriting and your weird scissors and stuff like that, I'll tell you. Literally, in the Hebrew, the phrase means impeded on the right side. So some have thought, well, maybe this means that, um, that he was uh, disabled in the, in the right arm. But it, it's hard to know that for sure because later on in Judges 20.16, it's going to talk about uh, 700 men uh, who were able to, to fight with both hands. And so um, it may just be their expression that they used uh, to indicate that somebody was either left-handed or ambidextrous. But it was a peculiarity that he had, but it's something we're going to see that God used. That people might have saw this as a fault or some kind of failure or something they looked down upon but it becomes used by God in, in what is going to happen here. And they sent tribute, it says here, going on in, uh, in this verse. The people sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So the people, they weren't expecting to be delivered anytime soon, it doesn't seem. I don't think they sent uh, Ehud out to be, their, to be their savior. I think he decided on his own, he was going to do something about this. I think he was realizing this is wrong. We shouldn't be sending all this tribute. We shouldn't be oppressed and serving this, this guy anymore. And I'm, going to, I'm not going to tell anyone, but I'm going, to, I'm going to take some action here. There's some indication that the tribute being sent by the Hebrew words might have been uh, large amounts of food that they were bringing uh, so that um, Eglon could, and his people could literally you know, grow fat off the work of other people. So, We'll keep on reading here. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So Ehud here, he's, he's going to have a plan going. He's working on this. And I don't know if they were allowed to have weapons or if it was difficult to come by, uh, but somehow it, it seems like he, he made himself secretly, he made himself a sword. And it was a short sword, uh, scripture refers to it as a, a cubit, but it's actually a slightly different word, a gomed. 
And a cubit, standard one, tended to be the way they would measure it was from your elbow to your fingertips, whereas a gomed was slightly shorter from your elbow to your knuckle. Now, what's interesting about that is no matter how big you are physically, uh, from your elbow to your knuckle here, it's going to correspond with how much space you have from your hip to your knee. So if you make a sword that that's length, you can bind it underneath there and hide it, and you can still move around and have mobility. I mean, if you have a big old sword, you're going to be walking like this. You know, and it's kind of a little bit of a giveaway. So, but he has it under here. And here's the thing, too. Most of the time, the way that you drew your sword is you drew it from the opposite side and brought it out. So most people and warriors usually had their sword over here. So if they're going to check you out, if they're looking for something strange, you know, underneath, do you, are, do you have, are you armed? Here's where they're looking at. That's what they care about. They're, they're not as focused over here. We're going to find out they should have been, but, but they weren't. So we have Ehud here. He makes himself a sword. Two edges, double-edged sword here, and uh, binds it under his clothes. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, and says, Now, Eglon was a very fat man. So he was, he was a big guy. Okay, he was, he was very large. We're going to see later on that's important in the story, and, and we mean very, very much so. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, so they came and you know, uh, respectfully brought him this tribute, and I don't know if it was you know, just uh, cartloads of food or whatever it might have been, and he obviously he had people with him helping him to bring all this. He wasn't doing it just on his own. It says, when Ehud had finished presenting the, the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. So they bring this, they, they leave, and they, they go out. He tells his other people, you, you guys keep going. And he comes back, and he, he, he comes into the king. And the king had kind of let his guard down. You know, these people had done him no harm and brought him brought him, you know, tribute, whether it was gold or food or, or whatever it was. It says, verse 19, But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. So he heard, I have a message for you. It's a message from God. I have to tell you this. And Eglon here, he was, he was, he was interested. He wanted to hear, what is, what is this message? What's this going to be? So he was able to get them, you know, all, all, all the guards, all the attendants, you, you guys all leave. So they all left. They left his, uh, his, uh, his chamber there. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And people argue about how this should be interpreted, but it seemed that he went up somewhere. He had a special chamber, maybe where his, he had a, a throne or a place that he would sit, and maybe there was better air circulation, you know, up there or a special place that's, Saw how you know, exalted he was and a uh, special chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And so Eglon arose from his seat. And as he doing this, he exposed his uh, rotundness uh, to, to Ehud. I want to pause here for a moment. I just, I just need to uh, make it clear. This, this is the Bible. You can't get mad at me for what I'm about to read to you. Because this is, this is Scripture, okay? And, you know, we, we take it as it comes. You know, and think of this. Every week, there, 
we go through Scripture, and so often I have to present to you things that are, that are tough to say out loud, say to people. And I have to say sometimes things that are stepping on toes, things that are, you know, might make people squirm, things that are, I know are going to be unpopular, definitely in the world, sometimes things that might be even unpopular. So it, it's, to me it's kind of fun when there's one that's just kind of fun uh, to have a little bit a passage like this. And this is one where if, if you're here and you're a boy, you know, hey, you should be in the Bible. There's, there's some cool stories here. If you're a dad, you want to start reading with your, your kid, yeah, read, read, read ahead. Read in Judges with them. You, you guys will enjoy this. All right. So fair warning here. He, uh, Eglon stands up, and Ehud reached with his left hand. So left hand over to here. And he takes the sword from his right thigh and thrusts it into his belly. Verse 22, And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of the belly. So first of all, we have here just pausing for a second. Uh, Remember I said, (laughs) you see here, Eglon must have been a very, very big guy. So you have a sword that's this big that completely envelops into him, that encloses. I mean, a, a very big guy. I mean, when Eglon sat around the palace, he really sat around the palace. Okay, so you have this that happens, and, um, and then it says, uh, let's see here. It says, well, it gets translated in different ways. What happens next? Um, the King James says, and the dirt came out. Okay, well, Eglon wasn't a, a giant potted plant, was he? Uh, so this is where it gets a little bit kind of gross here. Again, this is the Bible. Um, it seems that when he uh, thrust him through, he hit his bowels, his digestive region, and so the, the inner contents of that came out as well. This was a man that uh, probably didn't get the way he was having very small meals. Uh, so this is meant to be a, this is meant in scripture to really get your attention. Um, NASB has refuge, a refuse. Uh, just reading the English Standard Version here, it says, um, he did not pull the sword out of the belly and the dung came out. So that's kind of a, that's a graphic thing to take home. But Ehud here, he was a man of action. Hey, well, let's say this. He told, the, he told the king that he had a message from God to him, for, for him. I think, I think he got the point. How's that? I'll say this too. I, poor Scott. You know, there's, there's some passages where it's so easy to come up with uh, songs to sing you know, that go along with these things. And, and what do you pick you know, for... For a passage like this, although we did sing from the inside out, uh, sorry, but uh, sorry to wreck that song for you forever. It's not what it means. But Ehud—he was a man of action. Okay, he stepped up. He did what it what it took to deliver Israel. I mean, I would I would want to shake his hand, not his left hand, because I know where that's been. But I would shake his hand, and I appreciate him for being a man of action. Let's keep reading here. It says, so he does this. He, 
says, Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. So he locks the main door, he escapes another way, climbs down and, and gets out. And so you have the locked door here, the attendants, they're waiting for him. And after a while, they're, they're like, what's going on here? Looking at their sundials. Um, where, they're taking a long time in there. What's, what's, what's Eglon doing? And it says, when he had gone, the servants came. And when they had saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Well, he's you know spending spending a long time on uh, on the other throne, and uh, they they it says this is funny. They, here's the thing: every commentator that I read said that the Hebrews, when they read this, they would have found this funny, that this was meant to be poking fun at this foreign leader who thinks he's all that, that thinks he is living large, that he is just the man in charge. And people think that. There's these people that, that rule and oppress God's people, and they think that everything is going so great. And part of the purpose of this that the Hebrews would have had as they describe this bit by bit is that this was supposed to be hilarious to them. That God was presenting something truly that happened that was, that was to be humiliating to this ungodly king. And it says they waited till they were embarrassed can you imagine they're just, at some point, <laughs> it's been way too long, what's going on? But Do we interrupt? Do we not? Are we going to get in trouble? Eventually, when he did still not open the door of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened it, and there laid their Lord dead on the floor. He would escape while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Assyria, Syria, where he arrived. He sounded a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Like Eglon, you might be sitting on top of the world on your throne today, but tomorrow you might be made the, the butt of jokes forever. There's a time coming for everyone, even for, for the wicked, that God will judge. You know, the tyrants of this world, they, they do have real power. They do not have ultimate or lasting power. The one who gave them that power can and will end that when he chooses to do so. But an application here, too, is we're called to lead. And men of action lead in spite of their peculiarities. You here was a left-handed man. He may not have been the guy that, that people would have looked to as the, the cookie-cutter uh, leader. And maybe we aren't either one way or another personality, uh, just whatever God has given us. What makes you different? And if it isn't sin, embrace it and use it. If, it, if it's sin, repent. But if it's something that's not sin, embrace it and use it. Don't sit back because you aren't the cookie-cutter ideal. God gave you your peculiarities for a reason, and he has a plan, and he knows how he's going to use that. You who had a gall, he took risks. We can be like that as well. Now today, it's not about going around and we're not telling you to go assassinate someone. The double-edged sword today that we use is the word of God. 
Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Learn to use that Word of God. And last here, in, in Shamgar. I love Shamgar. He gets one verse, but I love Shamgar. <clears throat> so let me read this here. After him was Shamgar, son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Yeah, Shamgar. So each of these, I've given you a little description. You had the ideal judge, the left-handed judge. For Shamgar, we're just going to say Chuck Norris. So he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. At one point, I, I, I was trying to get Hope to name our firstborn son Shamgar. Thought that'd be a name, and she didn't want that. So she named the fish Shamgar. So we had Shamgar the betta fish. Uh, so wasn't able to work this out. may have told you this. I, I thought that great names, if we had two boys, name one Bo and the other Errol, because then we'd have Bo and Errol, and they'd be the archer boys. Um, <laughs> I was really hoping for, uh, for, for Shamgar. The, the name Shamgar wasn't a normal Hebrew name. You don't find that anywhere else with Hebrews in the, uh, in, in the scriptures. It was a common name in non-Israelite text. So again, he may have been someone that kind of got grafted into to the nation of, of Israel. And it says here he defeated them, he said, with an ox goad. So this gives me another excuse to pull out the ox goad here. Just to remind you what this is. And so an ox goad was a big, uh, long, uh, pointy stick used. If you had an ox and it wasn't where you wanted it to be, you would use this. And that got your oxen moving. So it would have a, a pointy end on one side. Now, if you had a real nice one, it might have a metal tip. Although, you know, they, it says later, still had to take their metal tips down to the Philistines to get them sharpened. So they didn't have quite as much. So it might have just been wood. It might have had a scraper end on one side, but it might have just been a stick. So he defeats... 600 Philistines with an, with an ox goad. Now, do you know why he used an ox goad? It's because he, he didn't have a machine gun. Okay? Like nobody had a machine gun. Do you know why he used an ox goad? He didn't have a sword. I think if he had a sword, if he had something else, he, he would have used that. But what did he have? He had an ox goad. Because they had this. They're, they're farming, they're doing this. He took what he had, and he still defeats... 600 Philistines with this thing through the, through the power of God and uh, by God's work in his life. So Shamgar, he wasn't sitting around crying about, I don't have a sword, I can't do this. I'm not equipped enough. I don't have, I don't have what it takes. I don't need this. That's not what men of action do. They don't just sit back and say, well, I don't have what it, what it takes. I don't have what I need. Men of action take what they have and do what needs to be done. And he took what he had and he did that. So are we going to be like him? He killed 600 Philistines. Men of action make the most of what they have. They don't let a lack of resources uh, keep us from leading. This could be equipment, talents, money, connections, opportunities. Take what you have and use it to lead anyways. You know, he gets one verse. And yeah, we're going to see later on, Samson kills a thousand. Okay, that's more. But Samson also has, and he has like four chapters. And it's four chapters of ways that he is a blockhead. <laughs> Would you rather have one, one verse 
where you're faithful to God and do great things, or maybe do a little bit more, but you have all this baggage of all these ways that you failed. Be faithful to God. Use what you have. I'll just say to you, you see this cycle of judges. You see all this time where they're in oppression, eight years, 18 years, and they finally cry out. And then finally God saves them, and then they enter into, they enter into rest. Through these, through these human judges that we're, we're seeing some of the best ones now, but they're, they're, still, they're, still, they're still very flawed as deliverers. But, you know, they point ahead to one day, the great deliverer that will come, that really will deliver us from the ultimate enemy, that our oppression to sin and slavery and to the devil. Scripture says of Jesus Christ, for the Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So talking about Jesus. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Quit spending years of time in captivity and oppression. Call out to the one who can really save you. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you praise. I thank you uh, for everyone that's in this congregation. I pray especially for the men that are here. Um, help us to step up and to, to lead the way that you call us to. And everyone here, regardless of... Uh, uh, gender or age, Lord God, you've given us, all of us, a sphere of influence. Help us to make the most of that, to help people to, to know to love you and to serve you, Lord God. And God, I pray for anyone that's here that doesn't know you as Savior, anyone here that's still in captivity to their, their sin and being oppressed by that because they have just been serving idols, doing what's good in their eyes and not in your eyes, Lord God, and who has not yet been saved. And I pray that they would reach a point of desperation where they would realize that their only hope is is in the promise of the gospel that you offer to them and that they can have this forgiveness, that it's a free gift being offered to them. It can only be received by genuine faith as they realize that, that their sinful ways are something they need to turn away from and turn to you Jesus Christ is the one who saved them, not just by his left hand, but by having the left and right hand nailed to the cross and his feet in a crown of thorns as he hung there taking the sins that we deserve to give us the gift of his righteousness. It's in his name that we pray, our ultimate deliverer, our ultimate savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.